This is the Mutual Audio Drama Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. It is the year 2015, and life has lost all meaning. What once was up is down. What once was right is wrong. And those who dare to make a podcast which subversively reanimates the dead art of radio theater are considered dangerous criminal outcasts. Driven into exile, four pungent brigands risk their lives to broadcast from a South Seas barge crudely fashioned from the disintegrating corpse of an ancient titan and several thousand yards of cooking twine to bring you the triumph, the majesty, the sublimity of rude alchemy. to Rude Alchemy, Chatter, and Lore. I'm Andy. I'm Andrew. I'm Tom. And I'm Ryan. <laughs> and we are the creators of Rude Alchemy. Uh, Chatter and Lore is an opportunity for us to talk about Rude Alchemy, who we are, why we're doing it, and also to tell some stories that will expand the ridiculous universe we're creating. If this is the first episode of Rude Alchemy you're listening to, thank you. Welcome. We're glad to have you. But since this is an opportunity to enhance and expand the world of the series, you might have a better time if you first listen to episodes one through three of our first season. It's called Carver Cranebottom Bone Detective. At Root Alchemy, we're interested in creating a serial narrative. What the hell does that mean? Well, Andrew, why don't you? Yeah, a serial ex- narrative is um, a story that is told in chunks, um, episode by episode. In our case, we wanted to be able to tell big stories that um, can take place over time. Of course, uh, the word serial um, is kind of exploded in the podcast world because there is a series called Serial uh, that is very popular. This is um, the only similarity between that and this is that it's also one big story that's told over a pieces of time um this is not a true crime or anything like that um it's also not really talky um this podcast that you're listening to right this second is this chatter and lore thing that we're trying um but the actual series that we're creating are more like scripted radio dramas that are hopefully funny and stupid hey fun fact fun fact andrew yeah did you know uh you know you know uh what's her name edith wharton she wrote ethan (laughs) from That was, uh, oh, I believe, yeah. that that started off as a serial, as a serial, and I mean, it's in a different medium. She was she was writing a, like you know, a, 
a, a novel and they put it all together, but it first came out in chunks, like in, in these, in these daily, no, well, not daily, but I don't know, these, these journals, these, you know, where you'd submit your writing to. And that's how, that's how she got known. Edith Wharton. Old, old, yeah, me and old Edith, we go way back. We know. You know, I, I once, I once saw a picture of her. I think it was like a carte de visite or a daguerreotype or something. I don't know, but you know, for a 19th century woman, she was pretty hot. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was, I was just, as, I was, was as hot I was, ta- I was taken aback when I saw her photo. <laughs> I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't anticipate women to be hot when I, you know, when it's a. <laughs> A photo that's 150 years old or so, but she was uh, she well, was she quite wasn't the 150 looker. years old when they took the photo though, was she? No, 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 no. I couldn't, I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a good look at the body, so I don't know. But her face was was not her face was pretty. But I'd be I'd be interested to do some, you know, if we could do some research to see, you know, how Edith Wharton's body was, you know, was it was it nice? <laughs> I think you could probably go Google Edith Wharton body shot right now, and you might be surprised with what comes <laughs> do you, up. Do, do, you think do you really think that image is on Google Images? <laughs> it's probably. It's actually probably. If you search that, that exact phrase, it would probably be some kind of drink that you could do um, at your 19th century parties when you're having a parlor game, you know, and it's like absinthe with you know elderberries in it, and you just you do it off of each other's navels or whatever mm. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that's what a cereal is now you have heard us voice silly voices and write silly writings in carver crane bottom bone detective but we'd like you to get to know us the real us and what better way than to tell it ourselves about each other. So, I will tell about Tom. Tom will tell about Ryan. Ryan will tell about Andrew. And Andrew will tell about me. Confused? <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. So, um, we oh. should uh, do this. This is extemporaneous. Nobody has prepared this. And hopefully this will reveal how little we actually know about each other. Uh, all right. I'm going to start with Tom. Tom. Uh, Thomas D. Hodgkin. Nobody knows what the D stands for. Uh, was uh, born in Glen Gardner, New Jersey. Mm-mm, that's um, incorrect. He is the youngest of, I'm going to say, don't correct me. Don't correct me until the end. The youngest of, <laughs> I'm going to say, six boys. And since he was the youngest, I think the whole story there is his mother was really hoping for a girl and ended up with Tom, um, which I think explains a lot about the, the way he is. Um Anyway, he did some shows growing up of some sort. He can inexplicably tap dance, even though he has no sense of rhythm or tune. Um, and uh, he is, uh, went to school, like all of us, for acting when he went to college, which was uh, clearly a huge mistake. And now he's a claims adjuster. I think that's just about everything about Tom. He's also married to a, a beautiful woman. That's literally all, all you all need right, to so know. So now, Tom, you, you, Tom, we're going to go around the horn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now we got to go around the horn. Tom, uh, you're going to do Ryan. Okay, so Ryan, uh, I don't know a lot about Ryan. I know that he was born in uh, the uh, northern mountains of Georgia, uh, right along the southern tip of the Appalachian Trail. Um, kind of, kind of Appalachian. Yeah, kind of an area kind of forgotten by the rest of the country. 
um, raised by his, you know, kind of incestual, inbred family, um, <laughs> escaped when he was about seven or eight, um, hiked the trail. Um, uh, by the time he got to Pennsylvania, he was 18. He was uh, disgustingly hairy and decided that he would be an actor uh, at the first college he came to, which was DeSales University. Uh, we took him in. We groomed him. We taught him how to speak English properly as best as we could. Um, he left college and immediately resorted to his previous ways of just being <laughs> disgusting and hairy. <laughs> and uh, we've spent the last eight years trying to get him back to the somewhat civilized person we found in college. Um, and uh, one of the ways we're doing that is this podcast here. That's wow. That was, that was really good. good. Very good, Tom. That was really that was good, like Tom. Part, uh, Ryan, could you... Part of, part of that story was like the Ryan, narrator's, you... the narrator's yeah. biography. Really. <laughs> I think there's a little overlap. Very good. Ryan, can you tell us about Andrew, please? Um, Andrew's incredibly handsome. Um, <laughs> he has like a, a very broad and, and solid back. That I can't help but <laughs> admire every time I see, um, you know, and I and I, I I'm totally freely admitting that that's that's totally fine. Uh, as far as Andrew's history, um, <clears throat> I think he, he was he was he was born uh, to uh, older parents, which I think you know uh, I don't know kind of uh, contributed to his very stoic nature you know he's kind of came from a you know uh you know from a kind of an older generation type feel to him um i think his, his father was from the hill country of pennsylvania i'm not sure he told me a story once of a fire on a hilltop in a, an old barn or something <laughs> i something i don't i don't know if his father would want that revealed but this was this was a long time ago so i think the statute of limitations has run out on that one <laughs> but this he told me this story while we were while we were uh looking over a a, a giant waterfall in in jim thorpe pennsylvania and i couldn't help but admire his broad and strong back then um <laughs> uh, uh, amongst his other uh, many talents, he's a, he's a musician as well, um, which I think it brings a lot of musicality to uh, uh, to his his speech, his, uh, and also quite literally brings music to our uh, our our uh, podcast. And um, let's see what else. Um, I don't know. I I think that that's about sums it up for me. Thank you. It was like it was like reading the back of a Harlequin romance novel. Thank you. <laughs> By far the most flattering bio so far. <laughs> yeah. History, sexuality, scenic view. Thank you. Yeah, and that was all very very heter heterosexually based though. I mean, you know, sure, just, I just sure. want to throw that of out course. there. I just like I said, I I can admire the male form. You know, without <laughs> is that odd? Is that weird? I 
no. no. Let it all let it all let it all come out. Um. All right, Andrew, you want to uh, take it home? Here? Oh yeah. Now I, ha- I have to tell about do, Andy. Do me. I'm Andy. Um, Andy is from almost Maryland, Pennsylvania. Uh, and he grew up there and his father is a sign maker. Um, this is, it sounds, this also kind of sounds like the beginning of a Grimm's fairy tale or something. It's like he lived on the border country and he, um, he went to school originally to study film and television production which I think in the in hindsight would have been a much more stable career uh, had he followed through with that, but he didn't. He decided that he was going to study acting instead, um, which is lamentable and regrettable. <sighs> I swear that we all we think we all feel that <clears throat> decision um, ruined my life and uh. Uh, and. <laughs> And uh, and when he made that move, he met the woman that changed his life forever mm. and showed him the ways of love <laughs> and life and um, and Italian food. <clears throat> um, and he uh, grows a mean set of mutton chops. The end. Very nice. You Absolutely. forgot to mention that uh, a- everything Andy has, he owes to me. That part was not included. In- mm. Oh, right. I forget. Yeah, yeah. Tom decided to not do this thing that Andy ended up doing. This thing was an, yeah. it was an, act- was an acting did- internship. <laughs> <laughs> to wear, to wear tights, to wear tights and pumpkin pants in 100-degree weather in the summer. Which is how he met his wife. Because I, I had already met her, Tom. But how you feel? Yeah, you a film. lot of things happened that film. summer. Oh, that that <laughs> that reminds me. I wanted to. There was one more thing I wanted to say about Andrew. Is that okay? Oh God, yeah. Go ahead. That's quick. Andrew, it may interest you to know, has had several hot girlfriends. <laughs> several. That's all. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's oh. ma- and he's marrying one of the hottest. If not the hottest, yeah. no, the the yeah, the, I, hot, I the hottest. Yes, absolutely. I think it's I think it's safe to say that he's the alpha male, right? I mean, there's no, no one's questioning that. <laughs> he is. I'll follow him. I'll follow him into hell. Yeah, that's not even just about the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that just absolutely. goes my everyday life. Kane, Kane is my alpha male. Absolutely. <laughs> I hope yes, all I, of our I, families I, listen to this and just scratch their heads the whole time. Our families I reg- aren't going to reg- listen to this. <laughs> I regularly expose my stomach to him in a sign of, uh, you know, uh, of submission. <laughs> if, I, if, if I had a tail, I would go between my legs and just I would I would I would let him know. I, I whenever I can, I let him know that he is my alpha. <laughs> we just lost a hundred views, a hundred listeners. We just lost. Now that we've covered chatter, it's time for the lore. This week we have two stories to share. We wrote these stories ahead of time. 
The only criteria we gave ourselves was that they be set in the Carver universe during a time that is not inside the immediate storyline. Tom will go first. Okay. Just going to go right into it. No setup needed. No setup needed. Here we go. Walding Warrington III spoke with a brisk clip to his voice that often irritated his workers. He constantly presented himself as far more upper class than he actually was. Standing at a pathetically meager five foot two inches, he was known to add lifts to his shoes to reach his current six foot-ish height. Of course, he would never admit this, but as anyone could tell you, his lifts were the worst kept secret in the greater London area. Terrified that he would be outed as a shorty, or in possession of what his father called a wimpishly and feminine and disgraceful height, he insisted on inserting the lifts into his shoes himself. Of course, Walding Warrington III was wimpish and girly, and never did learn to work well with his hands, so a cobbler he was not. This resulted in heavy, bulky, and uneven shoes. Accounts vary, and specific measurements are wagered upon constantly, but the general consensus seems to be that Walden stands at around 6 feet 4 inches when bearing his weight on the left foot, but only 5 feet 9 inches when standing on his right. As you can imagine, this creates quite the clumpity-clump sound while the short but tall man walks. Walden was put in charge of this factory years ago by his uncle, who pitied the poor fool after his father had disowned him when he saw the horrid creation that was his shoe lifts. At that early time in his career, his, wor- his workers found the clumpity clump of his walking rather amusing. Now, seven years into his tenure as the foreman of this factory, the jokes regarding the man's height had worn thin, and instead, the workers mocked his ridiculous nature and his wretched and doleful, doleful personality. Where is he? Walden asked. Oh, yes. And he spoke with a lisp. Poor, poor bastard. <laughs> Where's... <laughs> Where's who? Jerome asked. Jerome was new to the factory and not smart. He had not yet learned to ignore Walden until his face got all red and he jumped up and down demanding a response from someone on the factory floor, which inevitably resulted in him losing his balance and falling to the floor. The men always found this wildly entertaining, and would quickly gather around to watch the disgusting, lopsided creature that was Walden struggle desperately to regain his uh, standing position. How they loved to point and laugh and occasionally spit on the bastard as he flailed upon the floor. Merciless. But Jerome had, st- <laughs> but Jerome had stolen that laughter from them. He would need to be beaten later. They all decided. Bagwell, of course, I am speaking of Brandon Bagwell. Brandon Bagwell was the meanest, nastiest, foulest, evilest, most wretched and horrible man to work at the factory. Everyone loved him. He was... <laughs> he was so respected and or feared that he came and went as he pleased. On the days when he did decide to punch the old clock, he rarely worked. Occasionally, he would, hold one of the other, he would help one of the other men lift a heavy object onto a shelf or unload a truck if he, truck if he was in a particularly good mood. More often than not, he just came in, sat around a table, and 
told any man who'd listen stories that were hilarious if just made up and downright creepy and borderline treacherous if true. As for wages, Bagwell paid himself whatever he felt like he deserved. He did this by speaking with the one payroll clerk employed by Walden. And if the clerk decided to resist the burly and aggressive man, Bagwell would cut off a finger. The clerk in question was down to six fingers, which made people ask the question, why would you resist a third time? Sure, the first time a man comes into your office and demands payment for work he didn't do, stand up to him and say no. That's respectable. And hey, if after a few years of this continuing to happen, you decide to do it a second time, kind of roll the dice and see how it goes. Maybe get to see if your balls grew a little larger over the years and you can make the man step down. Sure, who can fault, who can fault that? But a third time? And a fourth? What the hell? You know he's going to cut off a finger. So why say anything? Just give him the money. It's not your factory. Fill out a report, tell your boss, and be done with it. Jesus. Anyway. Where is he? Someone must know where the damn bastard is. Why so curious where the big fellow is, eh? This was Dragon, Bagwell's only friend. Dragon is a stupid and absurd nickname, but he demands to be called this. I think his real name is Mitchell or something girly like that, so he's very insistent on the dragon thing. Mitchell is not a girly Unimaginative. name. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchell is a... Unimaginative. <laughs> Mitchell is a very manly name. A, I just need to assert that. It's a girly that. name. Is that your middle name? I need to assert that. Is that your middle name? It's a girly name. Unimaginative? Yes. Legally required by antiquated English publishing law? <coughs> also, yes. <laughs> I'm curious because we've been robbed. The safe has been broken into and we're short 850 pounds. Dragon turned back to his work, as did all other mildly curious men who had taken a moment to hear what had been robbed. Not all problem, mate, Dragon spat. It will be your problem when you cease to receive a wage this week. Suddenly, all work stopped. Hammers stopped clacking on nails, saws stopped grinding, machines whizzed to a stop. And there, Walden saw 46 of the grimiest, roughest, angriest, and most dangerous men London had to offer staring at him. A smarter man would have realized his mistake and immediately backtracked. Perhaps a smarter man would have tried to place the blame for their despair on the thief, i.e. Bagwell. Perhaps a smarter man would have attempted to control them, to focus this anger at attempts to finding the thief. But Walden was not a smarter man. He was a stupid man. A stupid, short, stupid, stupid man. So instead, he asked them, Oh, what? You think I'm afraid of such a bunch of troggle dice? Get back to work and you might get paid at least something. That's when he had his throat slit. <coughs> by someone. <laughs> Probably Dragon, but it counts different. Did you say by someone? Anyway, he bled out. Did you say he got his throat slit by, yes, by, s- someone. by someone? By someone. By <laughs> someone. details are not important. Probably Dragon. <laughs> Probably Dragon. But it counts different. Anyway, he bled out slowly, 
desperately oh, clutching God. his wet and sticky throat, oh, God. trying to keep the gushing blood inside. Like a <laughs> moron. You can't keep blood inside your throat with your hands, you idiot. <laughs> the men chuckled watching him fall awkwardly to the floor with his legs crumpling over his stupid lift shoes. The men, realizing they would not be paid for their work due to not only the robbery but also the untimely death of their stupidest small employer, decided to leave the factory. Later that evening... Dragon, God, what a stupid nickname, walked into his flat. (laughs) Sitting there in the dark like a psychopath was the one called Bagwell. He held in his hand a butcher knife. Dragon spoke spoke cautiously as he knew how temperamental this crazy lunatic son of a bitch could be. (laughs) What you got there, mate? Heard you took some matters into your own hands today, Bagwell said. And the fool was gonna, gonna shut us down. That wasn't the plan, so I figured, what the hell? Let's off the bastard and be done with it. The idea was that I was going to pin the robbery on the bugger warden, get him ousted, and then we'd have a perfect front to launder our money. You ruined all that with your stupid overreaction. And well, now, I'm done with you. With that, Bagwell took the knife and slammed it into Dragon's skull right at the forehead. The handle of the blade came down right between his eyes. He managed to get out one last word before, before falling to the ground. Bagwell! He gasped. Bending over him, he grabbed the knife and yanked it out of his former colleague's skull. As he left, he turned to the corpse and spoke his final words of the evening. They call me Butcher. The- and that's yeah! it. Fantastic. The end. Yeah. Well storied, Tom. Right. So that's I'm taking it that that is the 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 reason that Butcher is in prison when Carver asks him in episode two. Uh yes, and also how he got his name Butcher. Oh, that was the origin of the of the actual nickname too. Yeah, yeah. How he got the nickname? Because he used a butcher knife. Exactly. Do you think it's exactly he used the butcher knife? Picked right up on that. Picked right up. How difficult yeah. do you think it yeah. would be to actually m- stab someone in their forehead? I mean, that's that's thick skull. <laughs> Incredibly <up there>. difficult. <laughs> really well, tough. He, cle- he really like tough cleaved. To he like cleaved his forehead. Right. He he started. He he hit him. That, I think it just he hit him at the crown of the head, and it went all the way down to between his eyeballs. That's how I saw it when you told it. Oh, it was a it was a right. cle- Oh, okay. Right. I was thinking. All right, all right. I was I was thinking it was like a like a. a a dagger type thing, but no. So he cleaved him, cleaved him like straight down the center oh, yeah. of the skull, basically. Right. Is, is a butcher knife? Is that a cleaver? Well, but, that uh, no, I, I always thought a, a cleaver is a cleaver. A butcher knife. I mean, that's. I think butcher knives right. come in many different forms. You know, I know. But I think I think maybe maybe mm. a, a a cleaver is a butcher knife. Yeah. I, maybe there are different kinds say, of butcher knives, yeah. but a cleaver is a butcher knife. Right, right. It's in the category because certainly a butcher would need one. I can't believe we're spending this much time talking about what a butcher knife looks <laughs> it's, like. This is what it is, man. You got to sort this kind of shit out. It's important. I know you're right. Um, you're right. Just these things I didn't. My think insistence. About. No, Tom, on the I just name... out of curiosity, how much of your self and your own fantasies did you bring to the story? I just, <laughs> <laughs> like, it just seems like there was there I, was I think... a lot of. <laughs> Uh, emotional connection there when you were reading it with with the des- descriptions <laughs> of the actual knives kind of yeah. slitting throats and yeah. I mean is that 
Is that anything that kind of maybe crosses your mind every now and then? Maybe I mean, sure, I mean, sure. You can, you can just like just like any other normal person. Yeah, the highly judgmental, the highly judgmental and incredibly intolerant uh, descriptions too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> My insistence on the name, exactly. my insistence on the name Mitchell being masculine, I, I realize only as your st- story continues because I thought, isn't Mitchell the name of like a really burly deodorant, like a really kind of like manly, brute kind of deodorant? But it's Mitchum. Mitchum. It's Mitchum. I, Mitchum. It, uh, yeah, Robert so Mitchum. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 <laughs> I use. Do you use no. Mitchum really? Is, right. is Mitchum an actual deodorant? Do you? I've never yeah, heard of it. But you know before. what, Andrew? It, I've I have a you know how you have that sweating problem? It's like I feel like I've I <laughs> Andrew have doesn't now. have a sweating problem. Did you did you ever Andrew did you ever work that out, Andrew? Um here's what I did. I, I basically stopped using antiperspirants and I just said, you know what? You you just gotta let it flow. Mm-hmm. And I only use deodorant only now because and also because supposedly the stuff that's in antiperspirants is supposed to be really terrible for your body. Let's like let me tell you what your, I, I, pores yeah. it like clogs I pores ne- with I, chemicals i never used antiperspirants because of the aluminum content because people told me aluminum caused alzheimer's <laughs> so then uh, <laughs> it, it, they, they they flip they flip-flop all the time now they say aluminum doesn't so i guess antiperspirants are okay now i i but i I'm, i don't know i i thought i thought uh deodorant okay was an antiperspirant but... what's what's the difference between deodorant and antiperspirant? A deodorant is just a scent a deodorant is just like yeah. a smell that covers up your bad body odor <laughs> yeah that just masks actually, your body odor. an antiperspirant is like a chemical that clogs your pores so that sweat won't come out of them oh get out of here yeah. be careful the next time deodorant. you go to next time you it's go to your drugstore it's in the words just be wary. Hold on, Kane. I'm sorry. An- a- Andy's being a dick. Can you just let him go ahead? <laughs> I just, it's just like, I, you, 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 my wife asked me the same question the other day, Tom. So oh, good. She's a smart woman. She's 30 years a... old and doesn't know this. And you're 30 years old. Just, you know as much as my wife. I just want you to know that. I'm fine with that. As... I'm fine with that. Your wife is a beautiful, wonderful person. I'm fine with knowing as much as she does. <laughs> I mean, if you guys... I'm going to I'm gonna put that in a win column. If you had the choice... Now, I've always thought about this. You know, instead of a instead of a scented deodorant, what if you just had a, 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 a like an odor neutralizer bar? I mean, where it just kind of neutralized the odor and just, the odor and it just had... So you're kind of natural kind of not not odor but you're just natural scent would you would you go with that or do you want you know so you want do you want, you want a like non-scented spring deodorant? rain or do you want mountain <laughs> mountain you know glacier scent on you i just want uh why not just have a body odor body sweat. body odor de- scented deodorant i you mean i think that's just called chicken soup <laughs> or <laughs> Am I the only one that thinks that body odor smells like chicken soup? I loved that. That was great. When I f- chicken soup, I didn't get the chicken soup thing. When I take my shoes off, like oh. after a long day, it, it immediately smells like fresh buttered popcorn, and then about fifteen <laughs> minutes later, it turns into this something altogether different—a <laughs> vile, fresh vile popcorn. <laughs> has ever has, does anyone ever experienced uh, that? I don't. No, I've smelled top socks before. No, no never, no. never. Nobody has no. ever experienced that. <laughs> oh, uh, well, what do you guys was, think? This was lovely, oh. Tom. That was an excellent. What do you think? What do you, go ahead. What do you go think? Ahead, butcher Bagwell smells like. 
Well, they never bathed. Spring rain. They never bathed. He probably smells like sheep's blood and feces. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or butter, butter flavored or butter, popcorn. Or butter flavored popcorn for yeah. 15 minutes, and then he smells like yeah. sheep's blood and feces. Then it turns, <laughs> yeah, then it turns the corner. <laughs> oh, well, great, great story, Tom. I, I really uh, enjoyed it. Very good. Uh, so now I'm going to read my story, and uh, there's no real setup to this e- either, so we're going to get started. Here we go. This is oh, Mine has a title. It's called The Coin. Ooh. The, the, the coin, coin as in C-O-I-N, C-O-I-N coin? Or the... Yes. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, my, my headphones aren't the best quality. I just I wanted to make sure I didn't know if it was... Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. All right, here we go. I'm going to read quick because it's twice as long oh, as God. Time, so <laughs> bear with us. Uh, <clears throat> Parson Partridge's breath caught hard in his throat as the heavy iron door slammed shut behind him. He warily waved the dusty oil lamp he held in his ancient gnarled hand and strained to see to the bottom of the staircase. It was no use. The stairs seemed to descend indefinitely. His instinct was to pray. But when he thought of the events those many years ago that led him to this place, he was too ashamed. Instead, he shakily grabbed the railing and began his descent. When a man reaches a certain age, he begins to find his mind drifting to the past with more and more regularity. It's as if the hardy past were somehow more real than the pain-addled, crook-backed present. As the air became cooler and his heart beat faster and the stairs dribbled by endlessly, Parson Partridge's old mind, though made anxious by the unfamiliar surroundings, gave in to the tedium and returned to that night, nigh on fifty years earlier. Young Parson Partridge was assigned to a sleepy hamlet just outside of London by the name of Shrewsbridge. It was home to a dilapidated chapel, an unenthusiastic congregation, and a mountain of debt earned by a reckless former pastor. At first, young Partridge took the assignment as a compliment, feeling he was entrusted to turn the mess of a parish around. It was not meant as a compliment. Instead, it was meant as a repository for an abysmal seminary student whose well-connected father's donations were the sole deterrent to his expulsion. When Partridge's Monsignor told him as much, he vowed then and there to make the parish a shining example of the faith, and all without a dime of his father's money, and all for spite. He immediately renovated the dingy chapel, He bought brand new pews on credit, a beautiful new altar on credit, (laughs) stained glass windows from master artisans in Munich on credit, and the coup de grace, a handcrafted wooden door inlaid with carved depictions of our Savior's passion on credit. (laughs) These improvements saw an immediate spike in attendance at Sunday services, and Parson Partridge was very happy with himself, until, that is, the creditors started calling in their debts. At first, letters, then visits from lawyers, and finally threats. Threats to lean, threats to repossess, threats to vandalize, threats to his life. Parson Partridge did all he could to raise funds. He guilted the congregation. He guilted the congregation. Then he, uh, well, that's all he really knew how to do to make money. So, needless to say, it wasn't enough. One night, while sleeplessly pacing his humble quarters, arguing with himself about whether to beg his father for a loan, a great crash from outside. 
Fearing vandals sent from his creditors, he pulled on his shoes and his robe and raced to the chapel. To his horror, he saw his beautiful door torn from its hinges, hanging sadly to the side. As he came nearer, he saw the scratches streaking through the artisan's careful carvings. He lifted his head and blinked away his tears to see a small form hunched in front of the altar. Who are you? he demanded. A simple beggar woman, came the croaking reply. What have you done to my door? How dare you ruin this chapel? I was in need of grace, yet found the door locked. What other recourse did I have? You could have returned at a sensible hour. Do you realize what this will cost me, cost the parish? Get out of here at once. What about God's grace? His sanctuary? Get out, I say, and never come back. You dishonor God with your impertinence. And so the beggar woman sighed and pitifully slunk away, dragging herself across the floor, her useless legs slithering behind. Parson Partridge felt a stab of regret at his lack of pity, but remembering the door, he held his tongue. As the woman passed the parson, she held up a small silver coin. What on earth is this? the parson asked. An offering, the woman replied. Do you expect me to buy a new door with this? Partridge spat. It can buy whatever you want, provided you ask. Parson Partridge took the coin and peered at it in the moonlight. He strained harder, at first not believing his eyes. It was not modern currency at all. No, it appeared, in fact, to be a Roman coin with a depiction of Caesar. No, not Caesar. It was wearing Caesar's garb, but... What is the meaning of this? Parson Partridge shouted. But she was gone. He ran out of the doorway and swung his head wildly back and forth. Gone. Remembering the coin he still held, he shuddered. He couldn't resist another glance at the image it bore. No, it was not Caesar. It was... A monstrosity. The writer humbly chooses at this time to refrain from further description, as the image in the listener's undoubtedly vivid imagination is certainly more than sufficiently grotesque. I would not want to detract from the listener's private visage of hell. The parson thought of throwing the coin into the hedges, but fearing a parishioner might find it, he ran back to his room and buried it under a stack of books next to his nightstand. Exhausted, he collapsed in tears onto his bed and prayed. He prayed mightily for deliverance from his creditors. He prayed mightily for the rebirth of his parish, and most of all, he prayed he could accomplish it all without asking his wretched father for help. The next day, a few surly men in a horse cart came to repossess the altar. This went on for some weeks. Every night, Parson Partridge prayed his heart out, and every day another piece of his beloved parish was taken or vandalized. Attendance at Sunday services slipped to an all-time low until finally a letter from the Monsignor arrived. The Shrewsbridge Chapel was to be closed permanently, and Parson Partridge was to lose his posting indefinitely. Later that night, the parson knelt to pray, and the words would not come. In frustration at his own weakness, impotence, and idiocy, he kicked the stack of books next to his nightstand, and there, in a dull pool of moonlight, was the coin. As his eyes fell upon its romantic lettering and the unspeakable imagery, the words of the beggar woman rang in his ears. You can buy whatever you want, provided you ask. He screamed at the coin. All I want is a beautiful, thriving parish, a dedicated congregation, and to be a shining example of God's love on earth, and I don't want to have to ask my miserable, greedy, condescending father for a single penny. It was with the final word that Parson Partridge thought he saw a shift in the coin's image. Something about the monstrosity it represented now appeared to be gleaming cruelly. He felt ashamed of himself and his lapse into idolatry. He stacked the books frantically back on top of the coin, collapsed to his knees, and begged the Almighty for forgiveness until dawn, when he heard a knock on his door. 
In strutted a lawyer by the name of Barclay. He introduced himself and asked the parson to take a seat. Good morning, parson. I'm afraid I have some news for you from back home. Please take a seat. That's a good man. I'm afraid the news concerns your father. You see, he was coming home from the club last night and was set upon by a roving pack of garbage people. They seemed to take objection to his wealth, you see, and, well, I'm afraid he didn't survive the encounter. Dear God, my father? Dead? Yes, the lawyer continued. Now, I won't be getting too graphic. I think it's only right to try to spare you the details. I'll only say that the garbage people began by ripping out his fingernails and toenails with their teeth while pinning him to the ground with the entrails of the horse from his carriage that they had just disemboweled. They then took the head from said horse and used its snout, puppet-like, to bite off your father's private parts. Because they were the very private parts from which you were spawned. I'm sorry, like I said, I'll spare you the truly gruesome details. Suffice it to say, the garbage people then delimbed your father and used one arm to tickle his nose and the other arm to scratch the itch created by the tickle. <laughs> Ironically, the scratching was pretty ineffective as he had no fingernails. I, I thought this was pretty good detailed work. Uh, one garbage person noticed a small scar on your father's leg and held it up in front of his eyes and screamed, Do you remember how you got that scar? Judging from the color, I'd say it was many years ago when you were a small child, very early in your life. Your life, which is about to end. Remember that moment and all the wasted moments in between. Anyway, it was an attempt at psychological torture. I'm not sure it was super effective, but hey, they're garbage people. Then they shaved his head to the skull with a rusty blade and made him stare into a mirror and told him how beautiful he was and asked to marry him. They all had a good laugh. Oh, oh. Uh, finally, they sewed his eyelids open and made him watch as they sent the garbage children to claw open his stomach with doll spoons and devour the meal he had consumed moments ago at the club. Anyway, there's more, but like I said, I want to spare you the nitty-gritty. Oh, and uh, by the way, the real reason I'm here, of course you know, as your father's sole heir, you will inherit his entire estate. I have the paperwork with me. That very afternoon, after the paperwork was complete, Parson Partridge snatched up the coin in his guilt-ridden hands and headed into London proper and straight to the steps of the British Museum. He demanded to see a curator and tearfully begged for an explanation as to the origin of such a thing. The curator took one look at the coin, placed it in a small glass case, and issued Parson Partridge a yellow receipt with a few numbers on it. He explained that he would do some investigation and that the parson could follow up by referencing the code. Time went by, and the parson used his father's bequest to great advantage. The order to close was rescinded, and the parish truly was a shining example of God's love on earth. Even the parson's demeanor improved, and he was much beloved of all the congregation. In all the glory, the parson began to forget about the dastardly coin, preferring to think it an aberration of his own memory. A few months later, the parson read in the newspaper about the disappearance of a museum curator, and he realized with some disconcertion that it was the very man who had given him the receipt. His horror was reawakened, but preferring to maintain his comfort in this new world, he ignored the familiar feeling of guilt and continued his abundant ministry. Ah, but guilt is not so easily defeated. It returns and knocks from time to time like a beggar woman with crippled legs to rouse you from your luxury. And so, many years after the broken door, many years after the coin and the inheritance, many years after the incident with the missing bones and the murdered men, Parson Partridge returned by way of a horseless carriage to the British Museum holding a crumpled, faded yellow receipt. The young docent peered up from the receipt with a wry, curious look at the old man. This way, he said. He led the parson to a heavy iron door behind some ornate tapestry. You see this code, he said, tapping the receipt. It means unexplainable. All that junk goes down in the crypts. If you want to take a look, feel free. 
He swung open the door, expecting the staircase to deter the feeble old pastor. Instead, Partridge asked to borrow a lamp and found himself inside, with the door swinging shut behind him. At long last, at the bottom of the steps, Parson Partridge found what he was looking for. It took him only several hours, and yet the assorted blasphemies he witnessed in that short time did more damage to his soul than his own lifetime of sins. He climbed back up the steps and banged on the iron door. The docent opened it to find a much older old man, with snow-white hair and shaking wild eyes. Without a word, Parson Partridge left the museum, the coin, in his breast pocket. He headed straight to the center of the city's industrial district, where Tusk and Talon Enterprises had just opened a new metallurgy factory. He knew well the foreman, a good family man from the parish. He met the man, Frederick Milliner, on one of his brief breaks. "'I still don't understand, Parson,' said Frederick. "'You want me to melt this old thing down? Why?' "'The less you know, the better, Frederick. "'Just do what I say. It's a foul thing, an evil thing. "'It promises anything in the world, but only brings suffering. "'Toss it in the fire. Melt it away, please!' "'All right, Parson, whatever you say.' "'Frederick returned to his work, the coin in his palm. "'Parson Partridge returned to the street and hailed a horseless carriage. "'As he sat in the back, he felt peace like he hadn't since he was a child.' resting in his father's powerful, gentle arms, loved and adored, too young to be a disappointment. It was with this vision in his head that he drifted off to sleep, never to wake again. Back in the factory, Frederick considered the coin he now held in his hand. He was about to drop it into the swirling red soup of molten metal when a snippet of the parson's speech rung in his head. Anything in the world. Frederick had four daughters, and though he loved them all, every night he prayed to God for a son— his wife was with child, and was likely too old to bear another after this fifth young milliner was born. Frederick let go of the coin, then quickly dropped his hand under and snatched it out of the air before it could hit the fire. He tossed it up with a flick, caught it, looked the monstrosity in the eye, and said, I want a son. That very night, Mrs. Milliner was delivered of her fifth and final child. Suffice it to say that the beast that clawed its way out of Mrs. Milliner's corpse was indeed a boy child. But further description of the abomination would be yet another example of depriving the listener's imagination of what is surely an already vivid and sufficiently grotesque image. The end. Oh, All right. Masterfully crafted. <laughs> masterfully crafted. Well done. Well done. Ah. <clears throat> uh, I love, I love, uh, I, it's very, very uh, sort of monkey's paw-esque. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Same it's a thing. monkey's paw rip. Monkey's paw rip. Yep. You know, shame on, I guess shame on me for not knowing the content as well as I should, but I guess I always thought the garbage people were kind of a misunderstood people, but I, apparently they are dreadful murderers. <laughs> <laughs> I think they run the gamut. Uh, okay. I think they're okay. Yeah, because yeah, they're just people like anybody else. So some of them are, you know, <laughs> some of them are are kindly, and some of them they're more like are uh, torturous murderers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Notice how I think the biggest laughs in both stories, both Tom and Eddie's stories, the biggest laughs were the scenes of brutal violence. Like, it was, <laughs> What does that tell you? That's the thing that that made us chuckle the most.
Thanks for joining us for our first episode of Rude Alchemy Chatter and Lore. This is technically our mid-season Chatter and Lore. We plan on doing an end-of-season Chatter and Lore after the final two episodes of Carver Cranebottom Bone Detective. We'll be back to episode four of Carver in two weeks. We also want to thank you for listening thus far. This is a project we're all really excited to be doing, and without an audience, it would be kind of lame. Uh, please be sure to like us on Facebook. We do fun, stupid stuff there, like a weird Wednesday caption contest where the winner gets an exclusive download of a blooper reel. It's very explicit and very funny. Or just come say hey, make some posts. Also follow the narrator on Twitter. He's always tweeting his life story and men's grooming tips. And most importantly, <laughs> please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This really helps increase our exposure. We've got big plans for Rude Alchemy, and we know we can't make them happen without you. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Have a good night. See you next time. Mr. Andrew Kane, Mr. Andy Wertner, and Mr. Ryan Whalen. This episode's story is written by Mr. Hodgkin and Mr. Wertner. Episode edited by Mr. Kane. Intro and outro music by Old Town Wake. All other music composed by Mr. Benjamin J. Robb. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Hello, I'm John Bell of Bells in the Bat Free. It's a comedy podcast. Fridays and every other Sunday... Well, anyway, back in episode five of Bells in the Bad Free, we introduced the cowlets, tiny little cows. Where did all these cats come from? They're not cats, they're cows, and they're heading toward the water cooler. Stop it before... Now you can display your love of these tiny cows with genuine cowlet t-shirts. You know what's really fun to do with these shirts? Get a whole bunch of people to buy them. Then you all gather together and run down the street. People will see these cowlets coming toward them and think it's a stampede. You think that would really work, Brad? Shh, we're pushing for bulk sales here. You can also get cowlet mugs, clocks, and other items. Just go to thebatfree.com and click on shop. This is a limited time offer. No, it's not. You just do not not understand advertising, do you? Get your merchandise today with the official Cowlet design created by Jeff Music. Buying lots of them would bring music to my ears. Oh, stop. Stop.